thanks everyone for being here tonight. It's my pleasure to uh, introduce Nicola to you from Paris, uh, London, actually, my bad. You're based out of London. So I'm an avid uh, reader of uh, Nicola's newsletter, and I realized he was visiting Singapore, so I, I offered for him to uh, talk to uh, whoever would be interested about his work. So I'm glad he accepted. Thanks, Nicola. Uh, so tonight, uh, I'll be asking Nicola a few questions, again, about his work, about what he's doing at The Family, about his book, and uh, about uh, his understanding of the digital ecosystem, uh, both in Europe and uh, in uh, Singapore, I mean, in Asia. So first of all, Nicola, I wanted maybe you to uh, let us know uh, what you are trying to build at uh, The Family. Um, and even before that, let me say a few words about yourself. So I uh, understand you uh, graduated from an engineering school in France, Telecom Brest. Uh, it was you, I think you graduated at the time the, the dot-com uh, bubble burst. In a, so then you, you were a bit disappointed about the job uh, perspective then. So you, uh, you studied political science. Then you went to the French uh, National School of Administration. Then you, uh, you uh, worked as a civil servant for the French state. I think at some point uh, uh, Emmanuel Macron was a colleague or something. Yeah. So then I think you, you uh, got disappointed. So maybe you'll say something about that later. <laughs> uh, about your work there, about the possibilities there. Uh, you you uh, started a startup. Uh, then I think you joined again the, 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 the civil service. And then you founded uh, the family. So that's where you are now. And uh, yeah, so maybe you can, uh, yeah, so by the way, my name is Thomas Justin. Um, I've been in Singapore for the past six years. I'm the CEO and co-founder of KRDS, a digital agency. And uh, yeah, I'm a big fan of uh, his writing, so hence the, the connection. So this is uh, the family manifesto. So that's what they believe in. So I thought maybe that would be a good way for him to uh, elaborate on uh, what you're doing uh, at the family. Okay, sure. Um, thank you for inviting me today. I'm spending a few days in Singapore following my participation in a conference last week called uh, Les Rencontres Économiques de Singapore, uh, which was uh, with a French delegation, uh, mostly economists and me, and uh, a Singaporean delegation, and we were talking about the future of the world economy, so it's a very large topic. but. Uh, so I, uh, I decided to spend a few more days here to learn more about the startup community here and what the government is doing to support uh, entrepreneurs in Singapore. And, so, and I'm doing that as a co-founder and director of The Family. So The Family is a firm we co-founded six years ago in Paris. Uh, we were three co-founders. So that's me, that's Ali Zaguri, who is the CEO of The Family, and, and uh, the other co-founder is Usama Amar. And the three of us had had bad experiences in the past with building startups in Paris. So Usama and I, because we, we, had, uh, we, we were actually entrepreneurs, that's when uh, we were both entrepreneurs when we, when we met. We both left our respective companies uh, at about the same time, and then we spent a lot of time together debriefing the, that bad experience, uh, trying to understand where, where we had failed as entrepreneurs, and realizing that well, it was in part us. Uh, we were not really uh, tailored for being good entrepreneurs, but it was also in part the, the environment and the difficulty to build startups in Paris at the time. 
And so Alice, for her part, was the head of a Paris-based accelerator named Le Camping, who is, which is now NUMA, if you, if you know the Paris scene. And um, so Alice had, uh, although not an entrepreneur herself, had this uh, interesting perspective, seeing many entrepreneurs all day long, working with mentors, with, with venture capitalists, with uh, corporates. And so we had that discussion, the three of us, and we came up with so many ideas uh, about what didn't work that did, we decided that it was worth it. Uh, partnering and founding a new firm that we called The Family. And The Family from the start was about two different things that were two, two, um, uh, that combined them, themselves in our model. The first was to work with entrepreneurs and to grow an asset that is a portfolio of companies and supporting them in various ways, um, and more and more fin financially uh, uh, over time. And the other thing was to work on their environment. And the idea was that if we made the effort of reaching out to all the players that have an influence on the startup ecosystem, it would be good not only for, us, uh, for the entire ecosystem, but mostly for our own companies. And so we, we decided to dedicate a significant fraction of our time to uh, speaking with, with the government, with large corporations, with, uh, I don't know, academia, the press, every, every, uh, everyone that has an influence on uh, the startup scene in Paris. And we've been, and so fast forward to today, now the family has grown quite a lot. We have four offices in Europe, so one in London where I'm based, one in Berlin, and the last one, the mo most recent one is in Brussels, uh, in Belgium. And so we operate those four offices uh, as an integrated platform that we provide to all companies in our portfolio. And that's more than 250 and 50 companies uh, as of today. And it's, uh, it's mostly, so the majority is still French, uh, fr based in France, but more and more we, we're managing to attract a deal flow from other European countries. And so, and we've, well, we've raised money last, last year from a very large institutional investor. And uh, so we raised 10 million, so it's not a lot of money for an institutional investor that is actually managing 55 billion. But the way, uh, the, the reason they're interested in the family is that they see the family as a funnel through which they can deploy, deploy a lot of capital in European technology. And so we, since last year and our fundraising, we've been accelerating. We want to make the brand known all over Europe. We want to make the brand known in Silicon Valley because Silicon Valley has a, a lot of influence in Europe. And uh, so my colleagues are literally touring Europe uh, all year long to, to connect with local entrepreneurs, with local investors, and to map the ecosystems in, in various European capitals. And as for me, so because we've grown so much, we have uh, many people working at the family now, so I can focus on wh what I do better than the other, which is everything related to policy and, and um, ecosystem building, and, um, and I write a lot uh, about all those topics. Yeah, I can tell. Can you maybe comment on one of the key points from your manifesto here? Maybe, I don't know, the two or three that are very defining. I don't know. So it's part of the manifesto. The manifesto is a, is a short text that we wrote when we, when we founded the firm six years ago, 
we like to think that it's still valid today, so we didn't change the world uh, since then. Um, I think, uh, and the manifesto was, uh, as you can read here, was, was really designed to shock everyone. And we want, we, we, we're firm believers in the power of polarization. We think that the best way to make, to, to, to force change uh, in the world is to, is to divide, to, to draw a line in the sand and to divide the world in two and to, to make it so that some people hate us and some people love us and support us. And so we quite managed to do that with that manifesto and with many other things. I think a very uh, important concept here is the idea of the entrepreneurial age. So that's directly extracted from a blog post uh, written in 2013, so just a few weeks before we founded the family. Um, and it was written by a guy named Babak Nivi, who's one of the two co-founders of AngelList uh, in, in the US. Uh, he, he's since left AngelList for reasons that no one knows, but um, he's a brilliant guy, very intellectual, and so he had this blog at the time, and one of the blog posts published that year, 2013, was titled The Entrepreneurial Age. And it's a very short text, and you can, you can uh, look it up on Google. It's a very short text, text that basically says, well, we're... We used to be in the age of physics, and in the age of physics, what made the difference between the winners and the losers in the corporate, in the business world was, did you have the tangible assets, the physical assets that, 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 that make it possible for your company to have a competitive advantage over others? And then we left the age of physics to enter the age of information, and at, uh, in th that age that, that ran th from about 1960 to to very recently, actually, uh, the, the key asset was information. If you had the proper information, the valuable information, you, could, you had an edge, a competitive edge over your competitors, and you could win most market shares and, and crush competition and so on. And so the, the thesis in that uh, article is that now we're leaving the edge of information because information is effectively commoditized. And owning, uh, having some, uh, what, some information doesn't provide you with any competitive advantage anymore because it flows so easily that soon enough your competitors will have the same information as you. And so you can't rely on information to, make, to, 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 to best your competitors. And so today we're in the, the age of entrepreneurs, which means that what will make the difference between competitors on any market is... Can, do they have the entrepreneurs? And the entrepreneurs are people, uh, as defined in that um, article. It's a very precise definition that we love uh, the family. Uh, entrepreneurs are the, the ones that are um, seeking to achieve quality and scale simultaneously, which is made possible today by technology but was impossible in the past. In the past, you always, if you were building a business, you always had to choose between quality and scale. You could either be a three-star Michelin uh, chef, but you were stuck with a very small restaurant serving very few clients, and it was impossible to scale a three-star Michelin restaurant because as you scaled, the quality inevitably went down and, and, and you lost your stars. 
Uh, or you could choose scale, but scale came with a price. It, me it meant that you had to provide uh, your numerous customers with shitty products, very standardized, one size fits all. No one was really served uh, uh, according to their needs. Uh, and, and so, and every, everyone building a business was stuck between those two um, options. Either you, you had quality without scale, or you had scale without quality. And what's really changed today is that technology that is computing uh, networks through increasing returns to scale, especially network effects and machine learning and, and so on, you can reconcile quality and scale. And the more you scale, the, the higher the quality of the product, actually. And so those who understand that are the entrepreneurs, and entrepreneurs use technology so as to deliver quality at scale. And you can't survive as a company, uh, either small or large, either young or old, if you don't have those entrepreneurs who know how to harness the power of technology to deliver quality at scale. And so this is really uh, the, the, the strategic asset of today is entrepreneurship and entrepreneurs. And so uh, when we read that, Usama and I, we, we had an epiphany, like we said, this is it, we need to build that firm that will attract the best entrepreneurs of the day and support them with everything they need to succeed. And having a relationship with those entrepreneurs, well, educating them, partying with them, etc., will be our most valuable asset. So that's the idea. Yes, yeah, so at the family, you have a lot of ambition. I think your ambition is to uh, become the new Berkshire Hathaway. So that's quite ambitious, to say the least. Uh, you claim to provide capital and unfair advantages to entrepreneurs. Can you mention some of these unfair advantages and how you, you will, uh, I mean, how you are standing out of the, you know, uh, the clutter with all these uh, people and VCs and, uh, you know, uh, mentors out there? Well, um, the, 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 well, the family is a platform um, and when an entrepreneur joins the family, what we provide is continuous education, which means that we, we deliver advice, mentorship, uh, resources, articles, content. Um, I think, um, and that's the most valuable part of being in the family, and it, because it's very in intangible, um, uh, a lot of people are doubtful that it adds any value because, mm. but that really makes a difference. Like all the entrepreneurs that have been successful in the family, if you ask them what made the difference, uh, what, what do you like being part of the family? It's the relationship we, ha we had the, with them and that made it possible to, e to educate them on a continuous basis. Uh, unfair advantages is the name we used and we didn't invent, even invent that. We used that to to, um, that, that's the name we gave to all the partnerships we have with many uh, providers, third party providers, service providers, software providers. So, and I must say over time, that's the least important part of our, of our value proposition. Interesting. Uh, and the most, and, and the other important part is what we call access to capital. So we provide some capital and more and more so, thanks to our financial backers now. Uh, and, and the family is becoming more and more of a, of a traditional financial um, or a VC firm. But 
The most important part of our model is that because we have the family, we're constantly investing in building strong and trusted relationships with the best VCs uh, in town, uh, either in, in, in Europe, in the US, and maybe one day in Asia, I don't know. Mm. Uh, and we are vetting those VCs, and we, we have a white list that is semi-confidential of VCs you should work with, and we have a black list of VCs that you should avoid at, at any cost. And what we provide to entrepreneurs is when they're ready to raise funds, they usually raise fast, with good terms, with good VCs, because we provide that access. And, and those VCs know that when we send a company to raise funds, if it comes from the family and it has the, the support of the family, we think that's the right time to raise funds, then that's, it's, it's effectively the right time and they, they usually reply favorably. Yeah, and uh, what I like about the family is that you have some uh, contrarian uh, takes on uh, some aspects of the startup world. Like, for instance, you don't believe so much in uh, co-working spaces, in, ho in having space to host startups, and you don't really believe in mentorship. You believe in partnerships, in reaching out to many people within your network, but not so much in mentorship. Can you elaborate on that point? Yes, actually, that's two lessons that Alice, my co-founder and CEO of the family, drew from her experience running Le Camping in Paris. Uh, when she founded, well, when she was put in charge, so Le Camping, uh, before becoming NUMA, was a non-profit organization, and it was mostly financed by corporate sponsors, plus subsidies from the par Paris region and, and stuff like that. And when she was put in charge of designing that new accelerator, she didn't know a thing about startups or accelerators, so she convinced her employer to, to pay for a world tour of accelerators and incubators. So she had this extraordinary experience of touring the world to ask questions to everyone who had created a successful accelerator. And she came back with what she thought was good practices, uh, were good practices including having a co-working space to put all the startups in the same space and building a community of mentors. And then after two years doing that, she realized that those two things had been a, a strategic mistake. And, and because she couldn't undo that, she, that's actually the reason why she decided to leave and found the family. That's crazy. Uh, and so co-working space, that's the easy, uh, easiest part. When you have a co-working space and you put, you put all the startups of your batch in the same space, you have... Uh, in any batch, you have good startups and bad startups. Uh, what happens is that the bad startups are usually bad because they're unfocused. They don't work as hard as the other. They and because the they're others. not focused, well, they have all the time to talk and drink coffee. And, 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 you know, and, and so the good startups are, um, uh, don't like that. They, they like to be focused on their products. So whenever, so because they're disturbed, uh, the entire day by the bad startups, they decide to leave and settle elsewhere than in the co-working space. And so in the end, it's an adverse selection problem. You're surrounded by the bad startups. Well, all the startups that stay in the co-working space are the bad startups. And as I think it's a great learning that uh, we very yes, seldom uh, hear about. Three years ago, I think, or four years ago, there was a discussion launched by Sam Altman, who, well, who yeah. until recently was the president of Y Combinator oh, on Twitter. And he said, well, everyone in the world assumes that Y Combinator has a co-working space. Don't. We don't, and we think that's the key reason why it works so well. And so, 
And someone else, so Keith uh, Rabois, Rab uh, I don't know how you pronounce that, but from Koshla Ventures intervened in that discussion and said, yes, that's because startups are, a startup is like a church. And you can, and no, it's like a cult. And you can't have two cults, two different cults in the same church. And that's why each startup must have their own office to build their own culture and, and not to be disturbed by the others. And a lot of people pushed back against that because so many people have created co-working space thinking that it was the right thing to do, that they had con convinced themselves. But no, it's different for me, etc. But believe, my, uh, believe the experience of my co-founder, it really doesn't work. It always leads, leads to that anti-selection process where all the good people leave and all the bad people stay and, and you have to deal with them all day long. So that's the first thing. The, as for mentorship, um, actually Alice realized that mentorship didn't work in Paris, at least at the time, when Usama was selected as a mentor for Le Camping. Uh, that's how she, they met, actually. So, changed everything. Yes, well, he changed everything, so he arrived and, and he started to mentor startups, and all the startups came back to Alice and said, well, this guy is amazing, we don't want to see the others anymore. Uh, and so then she realized... That's the that, Usama effect. Yes. <laughs> and so she realized that, well, something was wrong with those mentors. And, and they reflected a lot together on what w was wrong. And the thing is that in Silicon Valley, mentorship works because it's a mature ecosystem that, has, that over time has selected the right practices through a ruthless Darwinian process. Like... Uh, for any question, there's an answer not by certain people, but by the entire ecosystem. This is how we do things here. And if you ask why, they say, because it works. And that's it. And if it ceases to work, then we change the practice and we switch to another practice. And so any mentor, a mentor is not someone who who has reflected on the best practices. It's someone that knows what you should do because it's worked for everyone else. And so in, a, in, a, in an ecosystem that is mature, the best practices are known, and the mentors are only those who pass those best practices on to you, uh, the young, uh, inexperienced entrepreneur. But in an ecosystem that isn't mature, like Paris was at the time, you don't know what the best practices are because nothing works or things work for, for, for certain people, but not for others. And so depending on the mentor that you look for, uh, um, that you, you ask uh, advice to, they'll answer, well, the answer to your question is black, or it's white, or it's gray, or it's a different nuance of gray. And then in the end, the entrepreneur has, hears four different answers to a question, and they don't know what to do. They've just lost time talking to people who all provided different answers. And so in that case, if you don't have a mature ecosystem, it's better to go without mentors at all. Mm. Or to select them carefully to make sure that they all say the same things. Because what's important is not what they say, it's the fact that the entrepreneur hears the same answer to, to, to the same question, which makes it possible to go fast, to, to, to execute fast, and if everyone fails following the one advice that everyone's giving, then the ecosystem shifts 
and comes up with a new advice. So I'm not even sure well, that today Paris is mature enough to, to restore the practice of mentorship. I think we're far from there because an ecosystem is mature when it has given birth to several billion mm. dollar companies and we're far from there mm. in Paris. Thank you, I think it's a very strong piece of advice, a very contrarian one. So here I've pasted uh, some of uh, the companies from your portfolio. Uh, so I understand there are more than 200 companies you've uh, helped uh, across the years. I think they are worth together as of now uh, close to 2 billion uh, euros. So that's, uh, that's very impressive. Of course, some of them have uh, disappeared as well along the way. Uh, can you maybe uh, talk about a few that you, I mean, uh, that are quite representative of your approach and how you've helped them and uh, where they stand now? Sure, with pleasure. So, well, j just to explain wh where I'm positioned in the organization. So, over time, I've been working less and less directly with the entrepreneurs in the portfolio. So, I'm not the one who knows them all. There's another part of the team who knows every startup uh, in detail and has the continuous uh, daily relationship with their founders. That's not my case, so I'm biased because the ones I know better are usually the older in our portfolio because at, at the time we, we were so tiny that we, everyone works with, worked with everyone. So which plus, one is plus, the most valuable as of now? Uh, well, the most valuable is probably Algolia over there. Actually, they're somehow ranked in terms of value like Algolia is the most valuable and Payfit is second. So I guess the, there must be some Captain Train, yes, but that one has been sold. So it's exited. <laughs> so we now own uh, shares in Trainline, which is the acquirer. For some uh, of those so who are not in Singapore, uh, sorry, yeah, from sure. France, maybe you can uh, mention a few ones. So, so see yes, what they do. So uh, among those, um, one that I worked a lot with is Hitch. So do you know who knows Hitch here? So, so basically, they're, they're now doing the same as Uber and Grab and uh, it's ride hailing. But at first, before doing that, they were uh, organizing that small community of drivers who uh, just for a few hours uh, every week would drive uh, uh, young people uh, Partying at night in Paris and and having to 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 go back home in the suburbs of Paris, and those young people. So there were two problems that Hitch tried to solve. The first is that those young people don't have the money to pay for a taxi, uh, and 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 they want uh, cheaper rides. And and those drivers, because they were amateurs, providing a service just a few hours every week, were ready to drive in exchange for a, a lower. Uh, earning. Uh, and the other problem that exists is even though you have the money to pay for a taxi, if you live in the French suburbs, that is, uh, well, most of you are French, so that's Gennevilliers, Sarcelles, uh, uh, Grigny, etc. So the, 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 the cities with a lot of crime, shabby uh, housing projects, no one wants to go there except those who live there. And uh, especially not the taxi drivers because they're, they're afraid of being robbed. When, if they, so if you say, well, my destination is Grigny, no taxi driver, even if you show the money and you pay, you, you pay even before the ride, they won't go there. Because, and so we have a problem. Uh, at night, the public transit doesn't work anymore. Uh, 
um, taxis are, t are, are too pricey. And if, even though you can pay, no taxi driver will effectively drive you there. And so the only option is to drive while being drunk, and which leads to many accidents. And so that's the problem Hitch was solving. And they had so many problems with the governments, with the incumbents in the taxi industry. Uh, they went on trial, they were convicted in court. Uh, they had to switch their model from uh, amateur driver to professional drivers, and now they're effectively uh, copycat of Uber, and they're really good at competing with Uber in Paris, and they're expanding very fast in Africa. Uh, so there's an exceptional company, because after all those problems, and the fines, and the trials, and convictions, they've been able to rebound, and to raise more money, and to switch their strategy, and to focus on a new market, that's Africa. And so they're exceptional, but I've been working so much with them because I'm the policy guy in the family. So I was the one like, trying to manage the conflictual relationship with the government, which was not easy and ultimately not successful, but we learned a lot doing that. Um, and I think I it's, it's very interesting because uh, you were yourself sued by the, the CEO of the leading taxi company in Paris. So, <laughs> so actually, you, you wouldn't believe that, but the, the, there are many people in the entrepreneurial world in Paris that have been sued and, and tried in court for various reasons. Uh, mine was that I, I had written this very harsh blog post in 2013 uh, denouncing the backward-looking vision of innovation that expressed by the, the, the owner and CEO of the largest taxi company in Paris called uh, G7. G7. And, and the guy sued me, like he, he, he still lived in the old world at the time and, and thought, like the old French elite, that if someone says something bad about you, you just sue, you're certain to lose. But it's so intimidating to be, to be tried in court and to have to pay your lawyer, etc. Plus, plus it costs money, you still have to pay your lawyer. And so he thought that he would crush me somehow. Which you got a lot of support. Which didn't work, because first of all, um, I was a colleague of Macron, so that's not Macron that, that, that's in play here, but I belong to that French Grand Corps, the Inspection des Finances, who, which makes me indestructible in the French system. <laughs> <laughs> and, and the other thing is that today, Don't touch him. bad publicity is good publicity, as you know. And yeah. so that guy, uh, Rousselet, actually provided me with my first thousands of followers on Twitter, because... <laughs> I simply tweeted, I'm sued by this guy that everyone hates in the startup community anyway. And he brought all the followers and a lot of support and a lot of love. And so. Just a word maybe about growth hacking. It's very trendy. It doesn't mean anything, I guess. But uh, I think at some point at the family, you were short of money. You could not even pay the rent or something. And you, you managed to pull out an offer for learning online. And, you, and thanks to all the sales that, that came in the, the following days, you managed then to move to a larger place. I mean, it's, it's a crazy uh, feat of uh, growth hacking. Maybe you can yeah, talk about. Yes, that's uh, oh, oh, more or less that. Uh, so who among you knows the story of uh, the Airbnb cereal boxes? I do. Okay, so for those who don't know it, so Airbnb is a company that failed and failed and failed and failed again until they finally succeeded. Uh, and... And because they were failing so much and, 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 and they, they failed so many of their launches, 
they had to make money on the side. And so they came up with different schemes and different very creative ways of making money. And one of those was during the 2008 presidential campaign. And they, what they observed is that there were all those crazy people that were fierce supporters of either Obama or McCain at the time. And so they decided to design those because uh, the guy, Brian Chesky, is a designer. And so he had this idea, let's design some cereal box, boxes, uh, uh, a series for Obama. And so it's called Obama O and the cereal that, uh, I don't know, there's a slogan. And um, Captain McCain for, uh, for the Republicans. Buy cheap cereals uh, wholesale and fill the boxes and sell the boxes so as to make a, a bit of money because those crazy uh, supporters are ready to pay an insane price for a, a cereal box that bears the picture of their favorite candidate. And so they actually made money and, and, and this anecdote of you know, creating those cereal boxes just to get the company going is actually what convinced um, why Combinator to take them in? Because they said, these guys are so clever and uh, nothing can stop them if they can come up with... So we have about this, we have our own version of the cereal box experience, which is that um, we started the, uh, the family in a small apartment in Paris, very nice apartment in Le Marais, we, in which we hosted e events for about 30 people. And then after... But there were a lot of events, and so there were a, a lot of people going back and forth. A lot of noise. Uh, and so a lot of noise for the neighbors, and the neighbors in that area of Paris are extremely conservative and don't like uh, to be disturbed. And so they complained to the landlord who kicked us out uh, after one year. So we said, well, that's not a problem. We wanted to expand anyway. Uh, and... Uh, and we were looking for a new office, and we found this large space that we still uh, have in Paris, which is still in Le Marais, but in different parts of Le Marais. And, and we said that that's perfect for, for us. And what was perfect was this very large space on, uh, um, uh, on, the, on the first floor that can host events up to 40, uh, four, uh, 400 people. And so we, but we don't have the money, and so we had two options. One option was to go back to our investors and say, why don't we invest a bit more so that we can take the lease on that great office space that will be perfect for us, not a co-working space, as you understand, but to host events. Uh, and we decided against that because we said, well, those people, those investors would, would have been rational and say, you're crazy, that's too large for you, that's too too large a financial commitment and you, we, we, we won't invest in that project. So we decided to make the money uh, ourselves. And so we designed that uh, and we figured out that a good way to, to raise some money very fast was to design a, a, an education product and to sell it uh, uh, to people who had to pay in advance in exchange for the program. And so we designed a, um, a program to teach ent uh, entrepreneurship that we called coup d'état. Uh, actually, at least one of you is a, is a uh, Raphael. Uh, oh, also. So, uh, and at first it was a um, in presence program. You you would have to you you'd attend uh, the an entire day of, of 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 lessons and 
workshops every Saturday during three months. And we sold that for the price of 2,500 Euro, uh, euros. And we sold that to uh, 100 people in three weeks, uh, which, brought us, which brought in the money to, to make the initial installment for taking that space. And that's how we expanded uh, in, in a larger office. Yeah, no, that's, that's amazing. Uh, uh, who has already watched a video of uh, Usama Amar uh, on YouTube? Yeah, almost everyone. I mean, he's an amazing, uh, mesmerizing speaker, and I, s I strongly recommend you go watch uh, <laughs> some videos of, uh, of his. There are so many, so much free content on, on YouTube, so yeah, it's very, uh, very interesting. Uh, talking about the Airbnb founders, um, I like what uh, Paul Graham uh, has to say about them, you know, the, the founder of, the, of Y Combinator. So there are different ways to qualify entrepreneurs. Uh, one of them is uh, ramen entrepreneurs, uh, entrepreneurs that can live off ramen, very low maintenance, but there's an even a higher level. Uh, and Paul Graham uh, talks about the cockroach entrepreneurs. So the cockroach entrepreneurs, nothing can kill them. They are so, so low maintenance, you know, they can live off uh, almost nothing. And so their startup can survive uh, forever. And I think uh, the Airbnb co-founders were the, the best description of uh, what a cockroach entrepreneur is. Well, un until last year, we've used that argument a lot as the family because many of those entrepreneurs came to us and complained, I don't have any money left, what should I do? I need to raise more. And we said, no, don't raise, that's not, if you raise now, that's, it will be uh, with very bad terms, very high dilution and so on. Look at us, we're the family and we've always managed with, very sh with a very short uh, time horizon and uh, very short on cash. And so we had that kind of leverage that we led them by example, if you, if you will. We, yeah. um, and so that's now over because we've raised enough money and there's a time for every, everything. But uh, I, I think it's important um, well, we contributed to making those people realize that you can effectively be more of a cockroach or a ramen entrepreneur. Perfect. So let's discuss your book now a bit. So you wrote a book about the, the new uh, great safety net that we need for the 21st century. So I think it, it goes back to a phenomenon that we call the, the great decoupling, uh, which basically is the widening gap between between, on the one hand, uh, productivity gains, and on the other, uh, with uh, you know, uh, real household income. Uh, so there's such a great decoupling, there's uh, more unemployment, you know, uh, companies don't last as, as long. And, uh, but the thing is, we, it happened in the past. It happened in the 1920s, uh, in the age of the automobile and uh, mass production. And we had a response for it. I mean, the world had a response for it, the West at least. Uh, and that was the, what Nicola calls the, the great safety net, which is a broader notion than just the welfare state or the, the simple uh, social uh, insurance. It encompasses uh, different fundamental notions. And the thing is, now it's uh, getting exhausted and we need to move to a new uh, safety net, the greater safety net, the, the great safety net dot to zero. So maybe you can uh, uh, talk about what that great safety net was in the first place, and then we'll uh, talk about the, the new one. Sure. So maybe j just a few words about this book and why I wrote it. Uh, 
so two years ago, started, uh, something started in the US that is known as the tech backlash. People started to turn against tech companies as opposed to supporting them. And it's true uh, a bit for the, popula for, for the general public, but it's mo mostly true for politicians and the corporate world. And so Usama came to me and said, well, finally the Americans are experiencing what we in Europe have been experiencing forever. That is, everyone hates startups or mistrusts startups because they're seen as an agent of job destruction, uh, industrial destruction, uh, privacy invasion, and things like that. And, uh, and, and, and so we in Europe are used to battling against that hostility that surrounds entrepreneurs uh, every day. And so they're used to it, that's part of the game. Whereas in Silicon Valley, they're not used to that because they're insulated in their, uh, in their Bay Area, uh, far, far away from all the rest of the country. And they have so much money that whenever people say bad things about tech companies, they can hire the lawyers and the lobbyists and the comms people to, take ch to handle the problem which makes it possible for entrepreneurs and VCs to focus on products, markets, building companies. And so, and with the tech backlash, there was this idea that finally they understand. Uh, and, and so they're becoming a bit more European in their experience of what it is to be an innovative entrepreneur. And so Usama said, well, that's an opportunity for us. For the first time, we have something to teach them as opposed to them teaching us. And so you should write a book about that. And so I reflected a bit, uh, what kind of book would it be? Is it a general book about tech and policy? Is it a book about the backlash? And finally, I decided to write a book about uh, well, uh, the welfare state, uh, not only because it's a topic that I like, and that I know well, I've been teaching that at Sciences Po a long time ago. And also, um, I think, uh, in the policy field, it actually covers the most important policies, the ones that make the most sense for the general public. If you talk to average people about policy, they, don't, they usually don't care, like copyright, they, they don't care. Uh, but if you talk to them about jobs, steady income, being covered in case, in case of problems, uh, that makes sense for them because that's all the key components of having a good life. I have a, good, I have a job, that jobs provide me with a high enough purchasing power, and if there's something bad that's happening to me or my family, someone will be there to support me. That's really what people care about. And because they don't have that anymore today, because that old system doesn't work anymore, they're angry and then turning against the elite, the banks, the immigrants, whatever you can hate uh, uh, for, for, cheap, for cheap. And so I think, so that's the argument of the book. It's the reason people are angry, and they're, in particular they're angry at tech companies, is because they don't have that anymore. They don't have jobs. If they have a job, it doesn't pay well. And if, uh, if it pays well, if they have a problem, they lose everything. Uh, and so we have to restore that kind of stability and security that makes people more serene and more, uh, more forward-looking. And that means that we have to reinvent the, what I called in the book the great safety net. 
And we had one that worked very well from World War II to 1975, about that. And then uh, af after that, it's, it, it worked less and less well until the crisis 10 years ago when it completely blew, blew out. And so that's the old safety net. So the, well, it's a very complex um, illustration. I usually don't display yeah, it on a screen because people are completely lost between all the information here. But just bear in mind that the most important message here is that the old safety net was built with corpor the corporation at the center because the corporation was the central institution that provided us with a good job, a high enough purchasing power, and security. And around the corporation, uh, governments in every Western countries at least built over time, they built social insurance systems, a financial systems system that provided households with the capital they needed to buy houses, to buy cars, uh, the things that used to be important in the past. And they provided also um, workers with the possibility to organize through strong trade unions who made sure that their interested, that the, the workers' interests were well defended against employers. And amazingly, uh, although corporations are, are usually extremely worried when you talk to them about that, all of that created a lot of value for corporations. Social insurance provided uh, corporations with a more steady demand, because if you're covered against risks, that means that if you get sick, you can still consume. If you get old, you have a pension, you can still consume. And if you lose your job, you have unemployment benefits and you can still consume, which is ultimately good for the corporate world. Uh, the financial system provided um, corporations uh, with more uh, solvable, solvent households because if you needed to buy a car, no, no one could buy a car with cash. You, you couldn't pay cash for a car, it's too expensive. But if you provide banks with the security that they need to lend money to households so that they buy cars, it's good for car makers. And likewise for um, houses. And trade unions, well, uh, that's probably the part that the corporate world hates the most. But trade unions, in effect, are, are a good thing because they, they extract more from corporations, which is recycled in the economy under the form of higher consumer demand. Actually, that's a lesson that's well understood here in Singapore. You, maybe you know the system where they work together between employers and unions and the government to make sure that everyone has a fair share of the pie and which preserve the balance of the Singaporean economy. And so it's all a virtual circle and it's been working so well until it, st it stopped working. So why doesn't it work anymore? It doesn't work because social insurance has become too costly uh, because we, we don't have enough tax revenue anymore to pay for all the social insurance, so we have to, so it doesn't work anymore. The financial system that we inherit from the past doesn't work anymore uh, because it provides you with all the money you need to buy houses and to buy cars, but today more and more people go without a car. You don't need a car when you live in cities, and more and more people renounce buying houses because houses have become so expensive. It led to the bubble in 2008. Yes, and and, and now you're usually renting and you're, or moving around. And, uh, and, and, and then, well, unions have completely disappeared. So not in Singapore, but 
uh, because the, the government need, needs them to connect with the workers, but in the West, they effectively don't exist anymore. So uh, social insurance is weaker, unions have disappeared, which means that the entire uh, mission of providing security to households have been resting exclusively on the financial system. And that, in large part, explains why we went to the financial crisis. Because if you, if you ask too much from one pillar as opposed to three pillars, then it finally breaks under the weight of what you ask for, for, from them. And the financial system alone cannot provide uh, the entire economy with the, with the prosperity and the economic security that we need to take risks, invest, plan ahead, move forward, and so on. And so this is why we need to reinvent yeah. the so entire safety net. Before you tell us about the, the new, uh, the greater safety net, uh, some important notions from your book, uh, because we'll have at the center of the, the new uh, the greater safety net, not the corporation, but something that you call the multitude. So you wrote a book about that, uh, before that one, and it's different from the masses, it's different from the people. It's something uh, very, I mean, that you can maybe elaborate on. What is the multitude? Sure, so that's another story. So that's actually my third book, and the two first were written in French, and the first one was written in 2012 with a friend of mine called Henri Verdier, who went on to become the CTO of the French government, and he's now the Macron's uh, ambassador for everything related to digital. Uh, to technology, so... Uh, it's not Munir. Uh, well, there's the minister who makes speeches, and there's the ambassador. Ah, okay. I see, I see, I see. <laughs> no, plus the ambassador is, well, it's, it's to deal with, uh, you know, the US, uh, other governments, uh, large tech companies abroad, and so on. Anyway. Uh, le, le, so, we wrote that book, and Henri and I, uh, it's a bit like Usama and I, we met when we were both entrepreneurs, and the, the common point between Henri and I is that we were very unusual entrepreneurs because we had that institutional experience before. Uh, and so, um, and we knew the old world and the, the French elite very well. And so Henri and I had the same idea, like those people, the French elite, doesn't underst don't understand startups. They don't realize that the tiny startups that are built in garages are the same companies that grow and end up becoming Google or Facebook or Amazon. And because they don't take startups seriously, we will never come up with a Google or an Amazon of our own. So we need those people to understand what startups are about, uh, so that instead of don't giving a, uh, not giving a fuck, they'll, <laughs> they'll actually care about startups and support them and help them grow. And so we wrote that book that it, it was a very simple book in a way. It was just to educate the French elite about the digital economy. But Henri, sorry, it's a long story, but it's interesting, I think, to, to, to understand that concept. So Henri said, Henri uh, uh, used to work for Odile Jacob as part of the publishing house. So he knew publishing well. And he, as everyone who's worked in publishing, he knows the recipe for, uh, for a book that, that sells. So I give you the recipe so that you can write good books. Uh, so a book that sells is a book that bears a very strong and polarizing idea that you can sum up in one sentence. That's it. Um, and, so, and it takes a lot of work. So we had to work very hard for many weeks and months. What is that key 
strong central idea that will make the book successful. And we came up with that very simple idea, which is in the digital economy, there's more power outside than inside organizations. That's it. That's the idea. And if you understand that idea, you understand everything about technology, computing, networks, tech companies, and so on. Uh, and so, so what's that power that lies outside organizations? It's the, the reason why uh, power has moved from inside to outside is because we individuals are now equipped with powerful computing devices, so laptops, smartphones, connected devices of all sorts. And we're all connected one to another through networks, which means that we can pool our individual uh, computing power to turn it into a collective power that is ex effectively exerted through networks. And so it's the same individual that form uh, the people in uh, politics or the masses in uh, consumer markets, but the, the dynamics are very different because they're equipped and they're connected. Uh, and so we needed a, a name to put on that and we decided to call them the multitude, which is actually a concept that goes back to Spinoza. And, uh, and, and, and so it's many people, but connected together and all different from the others. And they, they, they won't... Uh, and so our book was called The Age of the Multitude, so L'Age de la Multitude. And so I've been using that concept a lot ever since because that's the idea that sums up the entire digital economy again. So it yeah, because there's uh, something very contrarian again uh, about what you said before. You're saying that the, I mean, today's age is not so much about data. It's about entrepreneurs. But in the book, you go even further. You say, uh, but entrepreneurs leveraging the multitude. And at the center, you have the multitude for these three reasons. Because if you want to deliver quality at scale, you need to harness that power that's vested in a multitude. How do you do that? You do that by serving them, and in exchange for a good experience with your product, they'll, they'll provide you with what you need to deliver quality at scale. So it's a virtual circle. The, the more you, you manage to deliver quality at scale, the happier uh, your users are, and the more they provide you with the resources that make it possible to deliver quality at scale. So that's an illustration that explains it all. So if you serve a larger market, so if you scale up in the digital economy, you don't have to downgrade the quality of your product because as you scale, you access a larger multitude of connected individuals and you can, you can ask them in exchange for the good experience that you deliver to them. You can ask them for more data. You can ask them to interact with each other to peer-to-peer. Uh, -peer. And you can even hire some of them as an amateur uh, auxiliary workforce, like hitch drivers, for instance. Yeah, so the first one would be, for instance, when you browse Facebook, uh, you yes. realize that you're giving data to Facebook at the exactly. same well, time that you're browsing Facebook. But this one is like uh, reviews on uh, Amazon or yes. on TripAdvisor. So that's the data collected by Google or Facebook about you. That's the reviews that you submit to Amazon. And that's... Um, that's the hitch drivers or you uh, renting out your, your apartment on Airbnb a few weekends a year. And all of that together generates that surplus that in turn can be reinvested on the supply side into lower prices and higher quality. 
So that's how you manage to deliver quality at scale. And on the demand side, that means that that surplus makes it possible to create more jobs and to pay your workers more. And so that's the key to understand why we can build a new safety net. That's because we have that surplus that can be reinvested in providing people with better jobs and with more security. And also in the past, the dominant uh, companies, they were protected by uh, policies, uh, they were protected by uh, maybe their patents or uh, some uh, barriers to entry. Uh, while now okay. the dominant companies, they cannot be as complacent because they are, their power rests on the multitude and it's a very capricious uh, bunch. Exactly, that's the, the key difference. In, in the past, power allied was on the inside. That's, that was the assets on your balance sheet or your brand, for instance. Today, your assets and your brand and the number of employees doesn't really matter if you don't, uh, because you always be bested by a competitor that has no assets and very few employees, but that, that, is, that is better than you at harnessing that power from the outside. And uh, also, there's a concept that is very interesting, is your definition of a tech company. Uh, so it's a three-pronged definition, and it's in the sense that uh, some uh, companies that we can think of are not actually tech companies, like the old telecom uh, companies we can think of in France. They're not really tech companies in your eyes. Can you define a, a tech company? Yes, do, you, do you have the illustration? No, I don't, I don't, sorry, I don't have this one. No. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't expect all those to be displayed here. Surprise. But... Uh, Yes, yeah, so a, a, lot of peop a lot of companies like to be called tech companies today because they think it's fa fancy and hype and everyone loves tech, well, used to love tech companies until a backlash. So we've heard a lot about like banks are tech companies uh, or telcos are tech companies. But having a lot of computers in a high-rise building doesn't make you a tech company. What makes you a tech company is that if you use that computing power to harness the power of the multitude, which in turn provide you with all these resources and with a surplus that you then reinvest to better serve the multitude. And so you have that virtual circle. And so the three, um, the three criteria for being a tech company is first, you need to be a company that delivers uh, an exceptional experience to your customers. An exceptional experience that means it's, uh, it's fast, it's cheap, it's high quality, it's personalized. Uh, second criteria is you, you need to collect data from your uh, and resources from your users on a regular and systematic basis. And this, in turn, can be used to uh, increasing, uh, to generate increasing returns to scale. And increasing returns to scale is the microeconomic formula that makes it possible to improve the quality of the experience. So that's really the virtual circle. So better experience leads to more data and more resources, leads to higher returns to scale, leads to a better experience. Yeah, I think it's a very strong takeaway as well. In the past, uh, the big players, they were looking for economies of scale, and that would help them, but only to, uh, to a certain extent where there would be uh, diminishing returns, while in the case of tech company, there's no end in sight. The more data you have, the better you can serve your, con your consumers. Yes, and Amazon is the best example of that. Like Amazon, I, I remember 10 years ago when I was working uh, in the startup city in Paris, you, you still had the idea at the time that, okay, the Americans are dominating everything except for e-commerce where we still have our champions. So we had like Vent Privé and Pixmania and, and stuff like that. And Vice Minister, exactly. Ten years later, they've all disappeared or, or 
almost disappeared or they're only in France, operating in France. And that's because Amazon has, well, basically everything that I write about corporate strategy has been thought by Jeff Bezos 20 years before, except that he's busy building a company so he doesn't write everything in details, but we're all learning from him, basically. Yeah, so that leads us to the, the new, the greater uh, safety net, uh, uh, dot two, uh, zero, that you can see on, on the right. So yes, that, that was a long detour to explain that today in the economy, it's not the corporation that's central anymore. What's central in, in the digital economy is the multitude or the networked individual. And so, and, and that's a very, um, important paradigmatic insight. It means that you need to build the new safety net not around the corporation like used to be the case in the 20th century. You need to build it around the, con the multitude of the connected individual. And, and, and ultimately it's to provide the, net the networked individual with everything they need so, uh, so that corporation can harness their power and make profits. But corporations are nowhere to be seen here because they've become marginal they're important, obviously, but they're marginal. What's the, at the center is uh, the multitude. And so um, inventing the new safety net is effectively very simple. It means that you, sim you simply have to reinvent each of the three pillars so as to provide the same outcome, but uh, in line with what the digital economy is about. So you, you still need to cover risks, but uh, a different economy calls for a different kind of social insurance. You still need to provide people with access to capital, but it's probably capital to invest in new things, not houses and cars, but other things. And you still need to help people organize and defend their interests collectively, which actually is made easy by computing and networks. So, um, but it, it should be to, to serve the needs of the networked individual and not the workers of the old for these corporations. So it's a very different kind of unions that I called exit unions. I can go into detail if you want. So about the financial system, as you write that it's not so much about, uh, you know, uh, borrowing money against what you will own in terms of tangible assets, but in terms of uh, your earning power in the future, or maybe the, educa the education you will invest in, or uh, what you'll be able to uh, earn, you know, uh, in your future jobs. Um, so, the illustration about hunters and settlers? Yes. I, I saw that one, so. so that's it. So one of the frameworks that people like in the book is the concept of dividing the workforce between hunters and settlers. So in the past, most people were settlers. Like you found a job in a, in a company, you could expect to be there for 30 years, which means that you, you, you could buy your house nearby, put your kids in the school nearby, buy your car to go between the factory, the house, and the supermarket, and the school, and that's it. Your life was settled, literally. And, 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 and because those settlers, especially the factory workers, were the most productive part of the workforce, you really needed to build, to design the safety net around those, because those were the ones that were the most critical to economic growth. I think that today, in an economy that's driven by the multitude here, uh, settling is not an option anymore if you want to succeed uh, in your working life. Um, 
and that's because an economy that's driven by the multitude, so the multitude is impatient, fickle, uh, they want uh, higher quality, cheaper prices, shorter uh, delivery times, uh, and, and, and when they have that, they want even more. And if you don't provide them with that, you, they'll go elsewhere and leave your company and, and serve the interest of another one. And so that's why companies today, if they want to stay relevant and alive, need to implement innovation on a daily basis. They need to be ready to expand, to take risks, to experiment, to iterate, to launch new products, to diversify, to reinvent their business model. That's exactly what Amazon is doing. And that's why they've been surviving through all the booms and busts over 25 years. And so again, Jeff Bezos is the master in strategy. He's the Sun Tzu of, 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 the, of the modern corporate world. Um, so if you serve, so that's the key idea of the entrepreneurial age, but for, from a worker perspective. Uh, People wrongly assume that the entrepreneurial age is about all of us becoming either entrepreneurs or self-employed or freelancers. That's not true. In the future, well, well let, me, let me say that, most of us will still be employed by organizations. But those organizations, so we'll have two options. Either the organization we work for is entrepreneurial, which means that it will reinvent itself on a daily basis. And if you want to stay with them, with, with your employer, you'll need to reinvent yourself at the same pace. Or you will work for a non-entrepreneurial organization, which means that it will go bankrupt at some point, and you lose your job. So for workers, it's a very different world. It's not settling in the same company, in the same job for 30 years. It's about either you stick with the same employer at the price of constantly reinventing yourself, or you lose your job on a regular basis because your employer go goes bust. And that's the entrepreneurial age for, for workers, which means that the workers that will manage to survive and to make the most of that new age are those who are hunters more than settlers. They have to be ready to hop from job to job, to switch from, industry to from one industry to another, to move from one city to another, constantly in search of opportunities, uh, detecting before others that their employee is going in the wrong direction and is about to go bust at some point. And so you need to be on the hunt if you want to have a successful career. That's the best option in, the, in a new world in which value creation is effectively driven by the multitude. And so th this um, illustration is meant to illustrate that in the past, the corporation was at the center, as in the previous illustration. Around the corporation were the settlers, uh, represented by those uh, middle-class suburban houses. And at the margin of society were the hunters, because hunters have always existed, but they were despised, overlooked. Uh, those were... I don't know, the students, immigrants, um, or jet setters, like, uh, or expatriates, for that matter. So you could either be a very successful hunter, if you were a jet setter or an ex expatriate working in Singapore with a very generous package from your employer, 
or you could be a low-end hunter, an immigrant, working in the kitchens, in restaurants in exchange for no money and so on. And so those were really at the margin of, of the economy. Today, the ones who make the most of the new economy driven by the multitude are the hunters. And so suddenly the hunters, hunting becomes the winning way of life. And the settlers are, are, uh, find themselves stuck at the margin along with corporations. And so that last, that third circle that you see here is the people who voted for Trump or Brexit or the Gilets Jaunes, by the way. People who live in suburban houses that they thought would be a good investment and realized that it, uh, it entraps them far away from all the jobs and opportunities and, and vibrancy the, of the new economy that's mostly located in large cities. And then you have the old corporations that try to innovate to stay relevant but fail On the periphery. at doing that. And so they're stuck at the periphery and about to go bust. And so that's the new world. And so the workers today sh should be more hunters, which means that the, the institutions that we build, the new safety net, should encourage people to embrace the hunting way of life as opposed to settling in their job. And, and those who, who have to settle because they have kids, they're too old, they're for whatever, they have an old parent that they must take care of, well, we have to mitigate the, the, the very bad consequences of having to settle in an economy that rewards hunting, not settling. So that's the goals of the new safety net. Yeah. So I think it's interesting to reflect on that framework uh, in the context of Singapore and in terms of their uh, you know, government policy, because they, they pretty much want to uh, attract the settlers and at the same time to retain the Singaporeans, to get them to actually uh, settle. Uh, of course, they're happy if they can uh, move abroad and uh, learn and study, but also come back because they're very scared for their survival and it's important for them to retain their talents. And in Singapore, they pretty much encourage people to settle by subsidizing uh, housing, uh, provided you're married, uh, you have a child, you can uh, get subsidies to acquire your, your, your housing. Uh, and also you get subsidies if you, uh, if you move close to your aging parents. So they, they really want to, to foster that kind of uh, re, uh, family relationships. So it's very different. I mean, it's very different from what you're advocating in a way. But still, Singapore is successful yeah. in yes, this but, world. But on the other hand, it's, has, it, it's at the scale of a very small state. Indeed. That's, uh, that's a city, not a state. Uh, and so, so, so in, an, uh, in a hunting economy, at the scale of a large country such as France or even larger in the US, you need to be able to move around and to follow the jobs and the opportunities, which is not easy at the time because of real estate and many other schools, many other things. And, but at, this, at the scale of Singapore, I, I don't think that you need to make it easier, that it's not critical to make it easier for people to, mm, it's so small. to, to move from one apartment to another. Uh, what's critical is to well, is the fact if you want Singaporeans to stay in Singapore, that means that they'll effectively settle in Singapore. Yeah. But settling comes with a price. It means that you're deprived from all the opportunities that are elsewhere. And so how do you mitigate the consequences of that? You mitigate that by attracting enough hunters to create as much local value as you can. And that value can then be taxed or redistributed to the settlers. And that's eff effectively how Singapore works.
uh, or the, the value that is created here is because Singapore has, desi has in designed its, its entire economy to attract hunters, and hunters create a lot of local value mm. uh, on top of the value they retain and take back with them. Uh, and that local value makes it um, provides uh, Singaporeans with a good life. Indeed. Um, let's talk a bit about that idea of exit unions. I think it's, it's very interesting. So you say that any individual in any organizations needs a, a voice or an exit, needs to, to have a way to be heard or a way to vote with uh, uh, his feet and leave. Uh, what is an exit union? Well, an exit union is, uh, is well, it's the concept, it's a framework designed by a social scientist called Albert Hirschman. Uh, and, and it's about voice and exit. So he, he, uh, Hirschman explains that if you want to defend your interests, you need to be able to pull two different levers. You, you need to, you, you, you want to voice your concerns and your anger and what you have to say. But you also need the possibility of ex exit. If you can't exit, you can sh shout as loud as you can, it won't make a difference because you're trapped here. And the other uh, party at the bargain will knows that, and so they keep screaming, keep voicing your concern, we don't care, you're stuck here with me. And so you need both voice and exit. In the past, the, the unions used to rely mostly on voice, and that's because their goal was to defend settlers. And if you're a settler, what do you want? You want to keep your job, and you want your job to, to pay more year after year. And so they were voicing to obtain just that, that keep the workers in place and pay them uh, more year after year. And, and so the, 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 tools, the toolbox for voice unions was going on strike, uh, bargaining, things like that. I think that in an economy that rewards hunting as opposed to settling, you need unions to serve hunters as opposed to settlers. And so that calls for a very different kind of unions. Maybe they won't be called unions, uh, even called unions. You need to be able to provide your members with an exit as opposed to a voice. Which means that, so the example I'm using a lot, it's, it's based in the US. So there were a lot of articles at the time about the coal miners in West Virginia. And those economists were writing I've effectively written many articles about what would it cost to train those coal miners in West Virginia to become solar panel installers and move them to Arizona where there's a shortage uh, on the labor market for solar panel inst installers. It wouldn't cost a lot, actually. It's much less than the tax cuts voted by Congress to, uh, last year. And so... So that's the idea of exit union. Imagine if those coal miners, as opposed to having a voice union, had an exit union that would come to the employer, the coal baron, and say, well, without you knowing that, um, every Saturday, like coup d'etat, for six months, we've been training all our members to install solar panels. And we've been exploring the real estate market in Arizona. We've found houses for them. And so that's now. The decision is now. Either you raise wages and we stay, or we all live together 
move to Arizona, take new jobs in a new growing industry, that is uh, the solar industry, and you will, you'll be stuck with no one working in the mine. And so if you're an employer, you can afford losing one or two disgruntled uh, workers. But if you lose all, them, all of them at the same time, your business goes bust. And so that's a powerful bargaining level, level to be able to provide everyone with an exit. And that's really not what unions are doing at the time, because unions depend of peop on people settling in their jobs and staying in place. Uh, and so we need that new kind of unions that will uh, use technology to provide people with an exit and become the new platforms for learning new skills, reflecting on what you could do, what, on your next steps, uh, connecting you to people that have advice for you, um, uh, and helping you move when you decide to move and, and leave your house and move to another city, which costs a lot of money because it's not only the house, it's, uh, it's, you have to be prepared to renounce your, your earnings for several months and you have to take your spouse with you who will have to find a new job and you need to change the schools for, for, for the kids. And so it's, it's a lot of money and today no bank lends you money to, for that. They lend you money to buy a car but not for hunting on the job markets, which is stupid. But Yes, so I think that the uh, idea of exit union is really powerful. And uh, so you argue that basically entrepreneurs, startups are, are the ones that will bring about that uh, greater safety net. Not so much the state that is uh, just too exhausted and not uh, agile and nimble enough. And um, so I have one uh, startup in mind that I think is doing a great job in that regard, especially when it comes to access to education. Uh, it's, uh, I don't know if you know about it, but it's, uh, it's called Lambda School in the US, and they provide uh, free education. Uh, and uh, so you just study with them and then you get a job. So it's for uh, uh, computing skills, so it's still a niche. But what's crazy is that last week itself, they just announced that now they will even pay students for them to, uh, to study with Lambda Schools. So not only was it free until now, but now it's, it will, you'll even get paid <laughs> to study with them. And then you'll have a job and they'll take a cut of, uh, of, the, of your salary for, for a few years. So that's just brilliant and that's, that's illustrating. So they're not so much a, a union. And that was also a question, do you really need unions? Can't just startups uh, take care of this uh, part as well on, on their own? Right, just unions in the sense that it's about empowering workers and defending their interests. It could be a startup. But it can be a startup. It's, uh... so, so that's the thing. So you're a thinker, you're a writer, uh, but you're also a doer with the family. Can you tell us about two or three uh, startups at the family that are actually helping bring about that uh, greater safety net, helping uh, making it happen? Well, we have many of them. So we have a startup called WeMind, which is about providing uh, insurance product for freelancers, helping them finding an apartment to rent or um, being properly covered or preparing their retirement. Uh, we have one that's called Sci.co, which provides, so it's a gig platform essentially, so they are really focused on students. Like students have very high skills, but just a few hours to dedicate to working in the week. And so they've created that platform that makes it easy for students to find gigs with employers. And um, and I don't know, uh, that would be two of them. And we have many more, but I 
don't have them in mind. Sorry. So uh, I had uh, so many more questions, but I'm I'm being told that I only have uh, the right for one. Uh, so my last question is about the universal basic income. We hear a lot about that. It's very uh, trendy. Uh, people from the software world uh, they argue that that's the solution for all our problems. But again, you think it's it's a it's a diversion and uh, it's clearly not the answer. Can you can you say why? Well. Uh, now that, that you have those two illustration in, illustrations in front of you, you see that it's a very complex system. And as you know, you don't build a, a complex system in one day. You need to build, to create the simple systems, each sol solving a single problem, and then combine all those simple systems into a nexus of institutions. And that becomes, over time, after many decades, that becomes the new safety net. Uh, the problem with universal basic, so I don't discuss m it much in the book, I only mention it in the conclusion, and the idea is very simple, is now that you've read that book, and you've realized the, uh, how, how many problems we need to solve, and the pain we went through the last time to solve those problems, you, you might realize at that point, and we're at the conclusion, that sending a check every month to everyone is a bit short as a solution. So I think basic income is an illusion that has been uh, uh, inspired by people in Silicon Valley who don't know a thing about the history of social policy and, and don't really care. And so when people have been asking them like, but don't you see people are losing their jobs and inequalities are rising and housing has become unaffordable and so on. They, oh, okay, problems, let's, what? but I, I don't have time for this and I don't want to interact with the government that's a, that large, heavy, inefficient bureaucracy. So I have one hour to dedicate to coming up with a solution and let's come up with the simplest solution of all, which is sending a check to everyone every month. And now I can go back to building my product and growing my company and so on, and don't bother me with those social political problems anymore. So I think that's really, that's a bit simplistic, but that's really what happened. Like those guys realized that, oh, there's a problem. How, how can we come up with a solution that is attractive enough for those people uh, before going back to business? And so they didn't have the time to dig deeper into that long and complex and messy history. And so, so they invented universal basic income as the universal solution to every one of those problems, which it can't be because you, that's a key lesson from the policy world. You cannot solve two problems. You cannot kill two birds with one stone. Never, it never works. If someone comes up with a very seductive Position like I have this magic magical solution that will solve everything. You know, it's a crook or uh, it's a failure uh, uh, on, that's on the way. So. Just one last question, uh, because this is your first time in Singapore. Uh, you live in London. Uh, we know how much of a mess the Brexit is, and you have Boris Johnson who said that uh, London is just going to become the next Singapore. So, is that going to happen? And is it affecting your work? as a, uh, you know, a pan-European uh, uh, you know, startup investment firm? No, what will happen is that the UK will take a hit as a whole, but because London is so strong and the rest of the country is so weak, 
London will preserve its standing and its wealth and its economic uh, well-being. And it's the rest of the country that will suffer even more, which is a paradox because that's the part of the country that actually voted for Brexit. So, but that's the rule of network effect and clustering. Uh, if you make resources scarcer, uh, it's always the, the strong part in the system that wins, that, that, that maintains its, its, its position, and the weakest part that have to renounce uh, to, 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 to account for the, the scarcity, the new scarcity. So that's what will happen. I don't think that London can become the new Singapore, and that's because, well, um, did, did some of you read that book called How Asia Works by Joe Studwell? It's a fascinating book about why certain Asian countries succeeded while others failed um, in the second half of the 20th century. So the successful ones are South Korea, Japan, Taiwan, and China. And the failed ones are around here, the Indonesia, Malaysia, Thailand, and the Philippines. Um, and it's called what uh, development economists call the middle income trap. So they were stuck at the middle income level and never achieved development. Um, so Studwell explains in the introduction that he won't cover neither Hong Kong or, nor Singapore because those are not countries, they're cities. Not fair. And, and a city cannot be compared to a country because a country, by definition, has the overhead. That is, you have the cities that create value and you have all those people that you need to drag along with you that lives in the suburbs and the countryside, especially in a more digital economy. And so London could become the next Singapore if they secede from the rest of, the, of Britain and build a fence around the city to prevent desperate people from entering the city. Then they can become Singapore. Um, and, and that actually happened to Singapore, like Singapore became Singapore after they were expelled from Malaysia, which was a good thing for them because it made it possible for Singapore to become Singapore. But London, geographically, you realize that it's more complicated. You can't, you can't expel London from Britain. Okay, uh, very last one, uh, I promise. So, uh, yeah, very last one. So, uh, about GDPR. Is it helpful for European startups? Is it counterproductive or is it neutral? No, GDPR is, doesn't work because it's a, it's a regulation that's been designed by European governments to regulate US companies. And, and, because, and if, you, if you design a regulation not to regulate your own companies but foreign companies, there's always a bias that is protectionism. Uh, so it's not just neutral, it's counterproductive. Yes, it's counterproductive, and everyone knows that. Every economist knows that, that the, the stricter the regulations, the harder it is for small players to make their way onto the market. Plus, as an internet user, so you don't have that problem here. But my, my problem as a European internet user is that GDPR, the, 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 the only tangible consequence of GDPR is that I have to click more on I agree buttons Pointless. Uh, and cookie information of stuff so that makes uh, browsing the internet a very shitty experience and that i don't think that that can last forever we have to tell munir okay thank you nicola thanks a lot for your time we really appreciate on the behalf of uh, the french tech singapore
Megadon. Some questions, maybe? Fifteen minutes, yes? Go ahead. Thank you. Um, okay, so, uh, yeah, thank you very much for uh, all your very interesting presentation. Uh, I have a question that you, so you, you mentioned at some point uh, European Google or Facebook, and I think you said that part of the reason why um, we don't have a European Google or Facebook is that governments don't understand startups. Um, could you elaborate on the other reasons? And do you think, for instance, that uh, typically, uh, from what we can see in Asia, for instance, uh, which is part of my <laughs> humble opinion, uh, so it would be very interesting to have your view on that, one of the reasons is simply market size and a homogeneous market as well. So I think that um, you're right. Uh, I usually explain that the two main problems uh, of Europe on the, on the global map of the digital economy is that it's too fragmented and we have too good a life. So and, um, if you travel around the world, you realize that, that the, the situation may be um, maybe bad in Europe from a European perspective, but if you compare yourselves to the rest of the world, even the US, maybe not Singapore, Singapore might be the, the exception, like life is better here than in Europe. But life is, in Europe is effectively quite good. And so we, we're lacking that urgency, like things are going bad, we really need to come up with new products, new solutions, uh, like Lambda School exists, uh, Thomas mentioned it, because uh, American students are, are, are dying burdened by student loans. And so they came up with that solution, like can we re-engineer the financing of training people so that they're not, uh, they don't have to borrow money for studying. And so that's typically American. So many problems and so many entrepreneurs. And when entrepreneurs meet problems, they build great companies. Uh, so we don't have that many problems in Europe. That's the first thing. Too good a life. Um, and the other problem is the fragmentation, so market size. So, and that fragmentation is very tricky because it's not only languages, it's also cultures. And because French and German are so different, for instance. And you, a product that works in France won't work in Germany because it's, people are so different. And that's also regulations, despite the single market that exists only in certain industries, not all. And so, I don't know, maybe, maybe we'll lose in the end, but I think that what we need to do is to come back to who we are, how fragmented the continent is, um, and come up with a different way of building companies. Uh, and may, maybe target industries in which the, uh, fragmentation becomes an asset as opposed to being a liability. And no one has done that work. For, I, I, ex I usually explain that I like traveling in Asia because for a very long time, we Europeans thought that there was only one playbook to build great tech companies, and that was the Silicon Valley playbook. And a lot of efforts have been done in vain trying to emulate 
what the Americans were doing, which doesn't work in France. Uh, and Alice's thing with mentors, ideas about mentors, is a very good example. Mentorship works there, it doesn't work in Europe, for obvious reasons, I hope now. And so, uh, it, what Asia provides us is an alternative playbook, very different from the US. And plus, you have different playbooks. You have the Chinese playbook, and the Southeast Asian playbook, and the South Korean playbook. And so we can learn from those, not to emulate them per se, but to combine, to realize the, the breadth of uh, the, the, the diversity of solutions to, for building tech companies. And maybe in Asia lie some of the ideas that will, that if applied in Europe, will lead us to finally be successful. But I don't know, that's my next book actually, Building Great Companies in Europe. And another secret about writing book is that the ideas are clear in the end when you write the last page, but before writing the book, it's still, still blurry. And, and so let's meet again in one year and I have the solutions. Hi. Uh, in your opinion, what are Alibaba and Tencent? Tech companies or uh, newly born corporations? Can you say that again? Uh, Alibaba and Tencent, yes. what are they? Uh, tech companies or newly born incorpora uh, corporations? Oh, I think they're tech companies, definitely. Uh, I, I think they match the three criteria. Uh, Despite their size and uh, like the, yeah, the size of their operations and processes? Well, it's, you can be a very large tech company. That's, uh, that's not the... That's not what, what makes you or makes you not a tech company. It's, uh, uh, plus, if you're a good tech company, you, you scale up, it's easy to scale, and you're, you're, even, you're taken away by, by the growth, and, and you can't resist it. So it's normal that a successful tech company ultimately becomes very large, especially if it relies on a domestic market that is so large. And, so. and I think they'll get larger. There's a part of the book that is about it. I think that basically Chinese companies would expand their market along the Belt and Road Initiative. And they'll be the preferred payment solution and logistics uh, provider all along Central Asia and Africa. And ultimately, they'll arrive in Europe. They're already in Italy. Uh, well, they're already negotiating with Italy to include Italy in the Belt and Road Initiative. So it's coming. Last question, maybe. <clears throat> A lot of the example that you took were, were consumer-based business. Uh, you, you didn't mention any um, business uh, or corporate-based business. So how do you see this business uh, going on in the coming uh, years? Well, I think there's a convergence between um, consumer and enterprise businesses. So I usually, uh, I, I've not done that in a long time, but I usually, I, I think I, I, I use different reasons to explain that. First reason is that you see a lot of enterprise companies that are selling to users before talking to buyers. So that's uh, typically Slack and Dropbox. Uh, Dropbox is a very good example of another thing, which is that you start by serving people in their private life as consumer, and then those people are the ones who actually demand 
well, go to see their boss and say, why is it so simple to synchronize files at home when it's about pictures of my kids? And why is it so complicated to do the same thing in your shitty, ultra-secured information system that no one likes? And so at some point, <laughs> That's, and, and then that's when Dropbox knocks on the door and says, oh, we have, a, uh, we, we have a Dropbox Enterprise version for you. And so that resonates. And the, the next thing is that I think that the difference... So there used to be a time, a long time ago, when Enterprise B2B was about very long selling cycles. But once you have your clients very high margins because the client is a sucker and he's trapped uh, uh, with you forever. That's the, the, the model. I think that today the pressure from consumers, the multitude, because they're so powerful and the, the corporation so much depend on them that enterprise providers cannot expect to be able to build such, so, uh, such high margins and they have to be ready to compete uh, on a more regular basis with other providers. And so I think that the easy life in B2B is, is, is over. And, and, and so there's that convergence in terms of mindset and approach and culture between enterprise and consumer. But I may be wrong, but I have many examples of Hi, Nicolas. Thank you very much for the talk. It was extremely interesting. Um, I had a question, so looking at that slide over here uh, about the great safety net. So when I look at the cooperation, that's pretty much what happened in Europe and in America, right? And when I look at the network individually, it looks more like Silicon Valley. So disruptive technology and a lot of collaboration and synergies, right? Do you think that the network individual system works or already works in China? And do you think it has potential in Africa in the future as well? Well, yes, absolutely. I've, I don't know much about China. I've read a lot about China. I've traveled there, uh, not a lot. Uh, so I won't pretend to be able to explain such a large, old, populated nation, civiliz civilization anyway. But my, the sim simple version of the story that I'm using is that they've given birth to large tech companies in industries that were devoid of powerful incumbents. That was retail for Alibaba. Retail didn't exist in China before Alibaba. And so they had the entire market for themselves, as opposed to having to compete with the established retailers. And as for Tencent, they started in an industry that was completely new, that was content, communication, gaming, so the entire cyberspace, in a way. And so they've been able to succeed in those easy industries because they hadn't any incumbent to, fight, to battle against. And they grew so large because they were lifted up by their very large market, domestic market, that now they have the power, the talent, the access, the support of the government, and they can enter more um, difficult, harder industries like banking and healthcare, housing, they're investing in all, all of that. And they're doing that not as a startup, but as a very large company that tackles uh, established incumbents. And what they bring about 
entering those industries is their mindset and their, the very different relationship that they've learned to build with the multitude of connected users. So I think that the expansion, uh, both product-wise and geographically, of Alibaba and Tencent and the others will come up with replicating the playbook of working with the multitude in new industries and in new countries, including Africa. Um, so what we like is um, uh, a swift answer, good times, uh, you, and you can count on people when the inev inevitable problems co come up, as opposed to taking too much time to, re to respond offering very bad terms and not not being supportive when and and we could, because we have so many startups we've had so many startups going through our portfolio we've been working with every vc in town well in paris and we're learning to know uh, the others in other cities and so we have we've had very bad experiences with some of them very good experiences with others I, I, we think we don't have the critical mass yet to disclose what we, what we think, because usually it's based on confidential uh, information, like um, founders are not allowed to disclose the specificities of their deals, and so you can't really disclose that publicly. But we're we're, over time, we're more connected to more people, and so we, people know who's on the blacklist, who's on the whitelist. And so I would say that, that that's those three criteria. But one thing we have at the family is that we, there are certain things that we don't um, abstract too much. It's just that our team likes to work with certain teams. And, and that's a mindset. People are nicer. Um, that's it. Thank you. Oh. Um, Intensity, that's the, well, we, we're so early stage where there's usually no product or not much to see. So what we see is the founding team and what we're looking for is intensity. So that means energy, ambition, uh, you take all that speed, you take all that and you can sum it up in terms of intensity. And well, it's down to the last detail, like it's how fast do they re reply to emails? After a few days like me, or like real entrepreneurs, that is in the hour, that's, uh, there are many criteria, but you can sense the intensity. I, I'm not part of that, uh, of that team. We have a very small team of people who have that gut instinct, like they can tell in a minute, this is a good team. The idea may be bad, the product, the market is not good, but we don't care, we want that team in the family because that make, will make it possible for us to build relationships with them. And even if their startup fails, they'll build the next one in the family or will redistribute the talent to other startups that desperately need the talent. And so, 
So because we invest so much, so little at, at, at the beginning, we have the luxury of not being too selective and we can rely on that gut instinct on how intense is the team.